Chris's Ramble 3. Is this not a story worth the telling? Is this not a story worth the telling? Those words are spoken at the close of the great epic story Kathmagatura. That is the second battle of Moitura. Oh, it's a great story. It's got everything. It begins with a battle won. But it's then followed by a great series of adventures, defeats and victories, and eventual restoration of the land. The Daedalian king, Nuada, in that first battle, loses a hand, and, well, being blemished, he can't rule any longer. The saga tells how a new leader is chosen, poorly chosen, and this new king betrays his people and the land itself. It continues with the cow, the Glasgowan, representing the health and prosperity of the land, being stolen by the battle champion of the enemy, the Fovera people, and how the champions of the Daedalon are treated, well, no better than slaves. There are memorable heroes, some of them the most remarkable in Irish story. There's the much-loved Dugda, a rough giant of a man with his great border-forming club and his exquisite harp of the four corners, the harp that can create the music of choir, natural law and environmental balance. There's the herald poet, the Morrigan, who in this story is the woman, equal and one with the Dugda. So many more. The strong man, Ogma, Dian Kecht, the physician, who, with his talented children, together create a well of restoration and healing. Well, for a while. So much is lost, and eventually regained at great cost. There are spectacular battles, including the David and Goliath-style single contest between the young Lu and the terrible battle champion Balor and his horrible eye. But it is the Morrigan herself who speaks the poem that concludes the epic. It is a double-telling of full restoration and prosperity and beauty, the land lies itself a dish, a cup of honeyed strength, there for the taking, offering strength to each. But it also contains a warning that prosperity is not forever. Its restoration may need to be fought for once again. Once again may come great, unbelievable torments. Therefore, she says, at the end, is this not a story worth the telling, so let it be told nine times eternal. I love that bit. It's a great story. And if you want to find out more about it, there's a whole series of Story Archaeology podcast episodes that you can explore. It contains everything you want to know or might want to know about this wonderful epic tale. One of the problems that I encountered when I first explored the text of the Second Battle of Moitura long, a long, long time ago now, at the time I was using what is probably still the most readily available recent translation by Elizabeth Gray, but it was the sections that were not available were the problem. It was clear that there was poetry that had been omitted, left out. The text said, there is more, but it has not been translated. Now that didn't help. 
It just made me much more curious, especially as it included the second part of the Morrigan's closing poem, report, conclusion, or whatever it was. I found this so frustrating, and it just made me determined to find out more, but it wasn't easy. I was very fortunate. I know I've been fortunate. I got to work with a qualified expert. My colleague, Isolde Carmody, who was involved in the Story Archaeology podcast for more than 10 years and is uh, the linguistic genius behind it. She ended up writing her master's thesis in early Irish on that very text, the Morrigan's final poem. The story about how that came about is also connected to Moitura. Back in 2000, well, I always had this idea that maybe the whole of the story of Moitura should be told on the site itself in Sligo, at a place called, believe it or not, Moitura, although the locals call it Moitura. It's a great plain full of um, um, erratic boulders and there's all sorts of strange places and, and it's opposite the, the, the brick leaves, the ancient cairns on the top. Look over the top of the hills, almost like uh, the eye, the one eyes of the Fovera. You know, it's like these bald heads. It's a very evocative and interesting place. But the thing was, well, how do you organise a community festival on a site which really a lot of people don't know about. So I started to ask all the experts I could find, local community archaeologists, local community specialists, people who were running community centres. People were interested, but they didn't pick it up. And then somehow it came back to me, I think over the internet, that somebody was arranging this. So I tried to get in contact with them and found out that it was me. Uh, the, 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 the inquiries I'd made with other people, well, the rumour had got round and it was the rumour that I'd started going. So eventually I spoke to the, the community of Loch Arrow group and they thought it was a good idea. And cut a long story short, quite a lot of money was raised in the year 2000 and we appointed somebody to organise the project and we started setting up a pageant. It's a great story. It's a long story. And there's one or two pictures around somewhere. So I'll try and put them up. Isolde and I had to sit down and create the, shall we say, the text of the pageant that would create the telling of this incredibly complex story, which involved the Fovera coming over the lake by boat and a great battle taking place and all the various elements uh, set out in one form or another, including dance, poetry and a lot more. Now, at the time, Isolde had fluent modern Irish. But when we came to work on these poetic texts, she was also a little flummoxed. They were dense, they were complicated. And it was after it was all over, and that's another story with a lot of music and festival and a play that were cross-border play and a lot of community activities. It was, it went on over the year and it was fun. But Isolde decided to return to Trinity and take a master's in early Irish. And so she came to write her master's thesis on that very text, the Morrigan's final poem. I told you I'd been fortunate. So Isolde was able to tell me about all the missing poetry in the Cathmagatura. So much is told in poetry, and it is obscure and dense. She said that the poetry was the oldest material, linguistically speaking, and originally the whole story was most likely told, no, performed, through this poetry. The early Irish poetic form is, she told me, 
the somewhat obscure and very dense Rosk, the Roskut of poetry. So what are the qualities of, of the Rosk poetic form? I'm no early Irish scholar. I really am not. I have little modern Irish. Um, I have a little more early Irish, but that really doesn't make sense. It's like an English woman going, I don't speak English, but I do speak Anglo-Saxon. It doesn't really make sense and it's not helpful. I understand more Irish than I, modern Irish than I speak because the problem is however hard I try, my pronunciation is always slightly off. It all sounds right in my head, but when I listen back, it just isn't. But that's neither here nor there. The sound of the Rosk poems as spoken by Isolde just sounded so, well, right. They resonated with dramatic, alliterative rhythms. They were fast-paced, dynamic action sequences that drummed a visual path straight into my brain. But it's been extremely rewarding as well to work from her translations. A real privilege. So what might this poetic form have created in early Irish storytelling? Well, I could guess that it would have been a bit like the creating of action sequences in films today. You know, the sort of action sequence where you can't take in every individual move, but the whole creates an atmosphere of vibrant action. Imagine the scene at a feast, say at the Samhain feast of Rathcrohan, Crook and I, or Owen Maka or one of the other regional palace centres. The poets would have performed, perhaps to the harp, played not in the romantic modern way, but creating a more strident, urgent background soundtrack. Now, we may have these poems in their static written form today, but the experience at the feast would have been a lot more dynamic, to say the least. The poet storytellers would have been able to adapt, revise and select the building blocks of their known repertoire and blend them to flatter, praise, to directly connect with each audience so that every performance would have been a unique creation. After all, the greatest skill of the top poets was individual creative improvisation. It was traditional storytelling, much like it's believed that in the way that Homer, that the, the Odyssey and the Iliad was performed. And dismiss completely from your mental image any idea of an appreciative, quietly attentive audience. No, this would have been a lively, firelit space, crowded with men and women, possibly children and animals as well, eating, drinking, boasting. No, this would have been a lively, almost certainly raucous, cooperative, interactive experience, closer to the atmosphere of a rock concert than any poetry reading. Another analogy, although I am in no way qualified to make it, is the similarity of the Irish storyteller poets to current rap artists. You know, the focus on alliteration, short rhythmic rhyming sequences, as well as dynamic and memorable imagery, often including location-specific elements. Now that must have created something of a similar quality of performance. Now back at Moitura 2000, we planned an evening storytelling of the entire Moitora cycle, given by a series of poet storytellers, using their own styles and approaches, accompanied or not, whatever they wanted really. It was a unique evening. Unfortunately, the recording never happened. The terrible weather that August night made it impossible. Pity. Recently, I learnt a new word. Humoristic. 
I came across this word reading Professor Patrick Nunn's book, Edge of Memory. Ancient stories, oral tradition and the post-glacial world. In the context of this book, the word humoristic is used to describe the manner in which oral story tradition might contain stories that encode material involving distant memories of sea level rise, volcanic eruption and so on. They're stories which were designed to survive over the centuries so that the event could be remembered and show future generations how to deal with subsequent similar climate change events. He also suggested that perhaps to make them even more memorable, these events could have been attributed to or connected with larger-than-life culture heroes, ancestor figures or mythical beings. If you want to find out more about Professor Nunn's evidence on longevity of story, and it's really good, you can listen to the conversation we had recently on Story Archaeology's Stories in the Landscape Conversations. The link is there on the Is This Not a Story Worth the Telling page. Perhaps all memorable stories contain messages to some extent. For a start, the old stories are not dispassionate. They don't necessarily conclude with and the moral is, but they still identify friends, enemies, defeats, victories, heroes and villains, and of course, happy or tragic endings. Except perhaps Moitura, with its double vision of the future of the land, both optimistic and pessimistic. Perhaps it does leave the listener with a moral. I'll come back to that. Good stories have survivability. Big characters with challenges, intriguing locations, unexpected twists and fast-paced action. Some stories have real staying power. From the oldest stories of Gilgamesh and his friendship with the strange wild man Enkidu, let alone a quest for immortality. Or the ten-year siege of Troy with its unpredictable and ambiguous characters or the curious characters still found in the Old Testament tales. You know, culture heroes like Gideon or all of my favourite women, Esther. And then there's the strange and magical folk tales of ancient Egypt, mostly collected by travellers like Herodotus, and so on. Right down to Grendel and his mother, not forgetting to mention a dragon, of course, antagonists of Beowulf. All these stories have survived for centuries, and we've still got them in the present. And yes, of course they were intended to be highly entertaining, and they are. But they were also culturally important. They all included identifying social mores and memories, even if not climate change event memories. They were encoded into the stories. This was information worth passing down the generations. And the early Irish stories are no different. Another quality of a really good story is that it's frequently adaptable to the times in which it finds itself. To be memorable, a story will always be complex, multi-layered and textured, three-dimensional. Yep, that's the right word to use, three-dimensional, capable of being seen from many viewpoints. You could make such a case for Gilgamesh, the Siege of Troy and its aftermath, the adventures of Beowulf and so on. And once again, the Irish stories are no different. In the pre-Norman times, well, and post-Norman as well, genealogical elements might be to the forefront. 
Stories were often used in Ireland to support ruling families by providing them with assumed culture hero ancestors. And, of course, they were very popular again in the late 19th, early 20th century, this time as Ireland began to throw off the all-invasive English control and influence and so on. They took on the important role of providing a national narrative. And perhaps this is when the Tonbokunya, the Battle of the Two Bulls, became one of the better-known story sagas. The young hero, Cahullan, is portrayed in some of his adventures as an almost comic character, an impetuous child and, yeah, a bit of a brat. He often comes across a bit like the Hulk, or, no, a better comparison might be Ben Grimm, the Thing, from Marvel's Fantastic Four. They're both a bit grumpy, and they both have warp spasms. But the viewpoint of Cahullan, understandably in the late 19th, early 20th century Celtic twilight tellings, is as a noble, strong, brave and above all tragic hero. This is the Cahullan to be seen in the Dublin GPO sculpture. But in one text, Cahullan chose a celebrated life over a long one. The young comic boaster, the tragic warrior. Yeah, it works for both. However, there were English academics of the same period, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century, who were less discerning. One professor of the time described the early Irish stories as being low of tone and having no literary value whatsoever. Offhand, my memory informs me that I may have found that quote in the book Celtic Heritage. I read it back in the late 1960s, I think. And it was about then that I became aware of the overweening influence of neoclassicalism. And of course, Ireland was certainly not the only country in need of a national narrative about that time. This was the time of the Finnish Kalevala, a a synthetic but beautiful collection of oral stories. I've been exploring Irish stories for a long time now. But in recent years, I have become more and more aware of one encoded thread, a message, if you like, within many of the stories. It has always been there, of course, but with every year, it seems to become more and more relevant. Since I've already referred to both the Kathmakatura and the Tombokunya in this ramble, I'll keep them as my walking companions for now. As Isolde and I began to dig into the texts of the Rev Shkelter, the stories that surround the main war of the bulls like satellites circling a planet, we found a recurring theme. So many of these stories involve the unwitting or indeed deliberate betrayal of central tenets of Khoer, that is, natural law, the customs that enabled the balance of the land and the other world to be maintained, and which allowed the land to flourish, remaining prosperous and fertile. If this flow, if this balance was to fail, it was thought that the land would become a wasteland. Let me offer just a couple of examples from the Torn Revschkelter. The two swineherd, or what I call the pigkeeper poets, is probably a, quite an ancient story. In this one, the prosperity of the land depends on forests and pigs rather than cleared pasture and cattle. It begins with two provinces, Connacht and Munster in this case, living in harmony and sharing resources in common. It's only when they persuade their poets, protectors of their prosperity, into a competition to see who is the most powerful that trouble really begins. Both sides suffer hunger and severe damage to the land 
and the eventual fate of the two poets is directly connected to the two great bulls of the Torn. It's a good story. Many of the tragedies in other Revshkilta Torn stories centre on betrayal of birth customs. The rights of women in childbirth were sacrosanct in early Irish law and custom, yet in the story of Mucca and the story of Mether and the killing of her sister to the conception of Cahullan himself, the theme continues. Both Mether of Connacht and Concova of Ulster are equally complicit in these betrayals. Stories such as Ector and Nera contain stark warnings of what will happen if this destructive future path is followed. But inevitably, the stories converge on the central battle of the bulls. Both sides lose and even the bulls finally tear themselves to pieces and no one wins. You can find out more about all these stories on Story Archaeology. The Torn is magnificent, crammed full of spectacular heroic stories, but in essence it is an exemplar of how not to run a country. And the Kath Magatura? Well, in essence, it contains the same message. I offered an outline of the story when we set out on this ramble, but I think the message of the importance of protecting the prosperity of the land is even clearer in this story. The choice of a leader who betrays the land for gain and personal power turns out to be a disaster, leading to famine and poverty. The resources of the land are stolen away, represented by the loss of the cow, the Glasgowan and the Dagda's harp. A painful and a desperate battle has to be fought, but only after all those who care about the fate of the land come together to pool their skills, resources and abilities in a great council. The poetry describing this battle is unusually grim. Many central characters are killed, including Nurda himself, yet the courage of the host of unnamed fighters is also praised. Here's just a small quote. Many beautiful men fell there in the stall of death. Great was the slaughter and the grave lying which took place there. Pride and shame were there side by side. And at the end... The Dagda goes to the hidden hall of the Fovera and takes back the harp, restoring natural law. The music of this harp is able to summon back the Glasgowan and prosperity is restored to the wasteland. And that second poem, that warning of the future disaster and destruction of our world. The Morrigan's second prophecy it was a warning against complacency at the time, and it continues to carry its encoded message down the centuries and still speaks to us all today, maybe with a greatly increased urgency. And is this not a story worth the telling? Thank you for joining me on my ramble today. You can find everything you want to know about the stories I've mentioned on storyarchaeology.com. Thanks for listening.
Many central characters are killed, 